Welcome. This is the Woodbury Church of Christ Sermon Podcast. We're glad that you tuned in, and if you'd like to know more about our church, you can find out all the information at woodburychurch.org. Or we'll see you some Sunday, Sundays at 10 a.m. Looking forward to it. Colossians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. A couple summers ago, we did this uh, class series during Bible class where people came up and they shared how they came to Christ. You, know, you may recall this. And it was, uh, it was an amazing series in the sense that uh, you heard these stories. And I don't know if you know this. Do you realize there are no boring stories for how people came to Jesus? There's no such thing. It doesn't exist. Because even if your story feels super lame, if you're like, yeah, my parents are Christian and I grew up going to church and then I got baptized and now I still go to church. I'm telling you, that's awesome. That's an incredible thing. Not everybody has that story. And that's, I mean, that's kind of my story. But I love the fact it's not even just like this. You can make it as boring as possible, but there's always a moment in that process where people get it. Like the lights come on, the, the synapses in your brain start firing and you're like, oh, wait a second. I get it. I get it about Jesus. I mean, even if your story is like, yeah, my grandma was a Christian. And then later in my life, I decided that I liked my grandma and I became a Christian too. You know, you're like, that doesn't sound cool, but I'm telling you, there's a point in that story where light bulbs went off and you're like, oh, I get it because there's so many people that don't get it. That's the hard thing. When you're talking to people, there's people that just don't, they don't understand the life and the truth and the reality that we have in Christ. And you want them to get it so badly. You just want to like drag them by, you know, by the ear and say, no, Jesus is real. This truth is real. There really was this cross. He really died. He really rose again. But you can't, you cannot force people to believe this stuff. And so when people do, you're like, another one. I'm so excited. I'm so excited that we're on the same page. It's kind of it's magical when people get it. Millions of times, never diminished. There's billions of people throughout history, and it's never once diminished. I've never once heard a story and thought, well, that's lame. That's dumb. That's how you discovered Jesus. Now, most stories of how people came to Jesus have two acts. Um, the first act is they're aware of Christianity. And that's, that's true for almost everybody, right, in the world. They're aware that Jesus exists. They're aware of these churches. They drive by them. Uh, they're aware that people claim to be Christians. They're aware of all of it. And even maybe they go to church, and, but belief is abstract. The ideas have no real substance, no reality to them. There's nothing concrete. They're just floating in the ether. Just like some people believe crazy conspiracy theories. There's people who believe the, this nutso thing. And sure, there's people who believe in Jesus. And maybe they're marginally nicer and maybe not. I don't know. But it's just, it, it lacks substance. It's just ideas in the air. But then the second act, the second act of belief is where the magic happens. Where you meet somebody and all those abstract ideas coalesce and it's no longer an idea, but it's a person, a reality. There was this, this person who existed, who lived and changed the world. And when I say change the world, I don't mean in the abstract. I don't mean now that there's a lot of people who think that this person existed. I mean that you fundamentally live in a different world because of what Jesus did. 
The assumptions you make about how the world is, the way you engage with other human beings, whether you're a Christian or not, those things are different because of how Jesus, or who Jesus was. And most of the time, this second act of belief is a recognition. Like it just, wow, this stuff matters. I'm experiencing life differently. My life is going to be different. My children's life is going to be different. And it's the coolest thing to witness. And people will say, why didn't you tell me sooner? And we're like, we've been trying. We wanted you to know sooner. But evidently, you weren't, <laughs> you weren't ready for it. You didn't have ears to hear. So here's the backstory of this church in Colossae. Every member of this church, every person in this church had a story. But here's the general backstory as you read this little letter, what's going on. So Paul, the apostle, he's preaching 120 miles away in a town uh, called Ephesus. He's just preaching away. In fact, he kind of gets in trouble and uh, causes a little bit of ruckus. So he leaves the synagogue where he was teaching and he moves to this thing he called the School of Tyrannus. He rented this little hall and he was just preaching every day. And the message started, you know, filtering out. People started hearing about it and they were pretty excited about it. Something was happening in Ephesus. So people started coming from all over Asia Minor to hear this guy Paul talk about this Jesus. I mean, it was, there was something compelling, something in the air. And one of the guys that came to listen was a guy named Epaphras. That's his nickname. His full name was Epaphroditus. He was named after the goddess Aphrodite. But his nickname was Epaphras, and he comes to listen to Paul 120 miles. He must have walked to listen, and he got it. He heard Paul talk and he's like, yes, he had that second stage of belief. He's like, yeah. And then he takes that back to his hometown crowd in Colossae. And he's like, I heard the most amazing things. It was incredible. And he starts teaching other people around him and they listen and they get it. And the church starts to grow. He talks to his home crowd, hometown crowd and, and this Jesus community starts to form. And at first everything is awesome. People are loving it. They're like, this is transformational. This is amazing. And then like a, like a check engine light in a new car, things start to shift. It's not like it's all gone off the rails right away, but something doesn't feel right. Epaphras is like, I don't, I, I was trying to teach him what I heard from Paul about Jesus, but something's starting to go awry. I don't know what's going on. They're losing grip on Jesus and he tries to steer him back, but he doesn't know how to fix it. So he goes back to Paul, walks back the 120 miles, and he says, Paul, something's wrong. Can you help? And the letter we're reading is Paul's help to this church that was starting to, to veer off. Like, it's close, but not quite. It's like, it's like raisins and cookies. You're like, ah, that almost is right, but then you ruined it with the raisins. <laughs> the experience of... Seeing something through someone else's eyes is transformational. Something that, particularly something that you take for granted. The experience of seeing it through someone else's eyes. I get this short little video clip. Uh, it may play twice. I don't know. We're about to see what happens. But it's of a baby trying ice cream for the first time. All right, you ready? Let's watch that if we're ready to go. Ice cream for her birthday party. <laughs> Let go. Let go. Let go. 
I love it. Now, you've, you've had experiences like that with your kids, or you've taken somebody somewhere that you really love. You went to, you know, Chick-fil-A. They'd never had Chick-fil-A, and you're like, oh, it's going to change your life. You know, whatever. You know, whatever. You, you have a song. You have a movie that you're like, this is so good. A book. You want them to read it. You want to see that experience through somebody else's eyes. You want to see a child eating ice cream for the first time, and <laughs> this child's going to lifelong, and it's going to be interesting if every time they see ice cream, they're grabbing on with both hands. Uh, when Presley came to Minnesota for the first time last year, I got a lot of Presley stories that I've been filing away. I'm going to dole them out slowly throughout the years. It's going to be great. But this isn't a bad one. This is just, it's just an observation. He came up last year in May, and he came up to Minnesota. He's like, wow, Minnesota is so green. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Arkansas? Is Arkansas like just brown and dirt and awful? I mean, is, is Arkansas that bad? No, all right. Very, hey, Arkansas Tourist Department right there. Arkansas's not that bad. That's a slogan. I think we could, we could all live with that. Arkansas, it's not bad. But he came up and he was like, man, Minnesota's so green. It's so beautiful. It's so nice up here. And I'm like, you know what? It is. That's true. Sometimes in January, I do forget that Minnesota is a beautiful place to be for six months out of the year. Sometimes I just don't remember, and it's nice to have that experience, see reality through fresh eyes. Well, the cool thing, if you're willing to let this happen, the cool thing that can happen for you today and happen for you through Colossians is that you can see Jesus through fresh eyes. You can see Jesus through someone who was so compelled by him that they dedicated their life for him and then allowed themselves to die for him. You can see Jesus through those eyes, and I'm telling you, it will be a transformational experience. But you have to let it. Jesus said all the time, hey, if you have ears to hear, and what he was saying is some people don't. Some people are going to sit and they're going to read Colossians, they're going to hear Colossians, they're going to hear preaching about Colossians, and their arms are going to be crossed, their ears are going to be closed, they're just going to be like, whatever, it's no big deal. But I'm just challenging you, if you can pray that the Spirit would soften your heart and open your ears, it's transformational. It will change your life, and it will change your children's lives, and your grandchildren's lives. That's the power. It's incredible. In the process of trying to steer the ship away from the rocks, the Colossians were starting to, to, to mess with truth. Uh, we have this chance to see Jesus differently. There's an author, a commentator, old, old commentator from the uh, 19th century, J.B. Lightfoot. And he just wrote this little phrase I thought was so good. He says, Colossians is the most precise and full picture of Jesus that Paul ever composed. And we get to see that. And I hope you're ready for that. Teen camp is coming up, and this isn't an advertisement for it. I just want to tell you a little bit about what happens when you send your kids up to teen camp. One of the representatives from teen camp uh, today came up and said that sometimes kids do stupid things up at camp. And I want to assure you that's not true. I'm the director of teen camp, and no stupid <laughs> things happen ever. It's, run like, it's a well-run ship. Is that the phrase? Anyway. Anyway, it's a tightly run ship. Anyway, teen camp lasts for two weeks, and there's things that you do every, every year. There's things that they've been doing up at teen camp for, for decades, for centuries, for as long as teen camp has existed. And I don't know how long I, I, I inherited teen camp, so to speak. You know, I grew up going to camps myself, but I inherited teen camp. But one of the things that they do is they do guys' night, girls' night. And parents, I don't want to freak you out. 
But a lot of the reasons your kids go to teen camp, it's not so much so that they can get a fresh experience of Jesus. It's because there's girls and guys up there that they want to hang out with for two weeks. I know it might be shocking. But one of the things they do is they do this guys night, girls night, and all the guys go to one side of the camp and they spend the whole evening together and all the girls go to the other side of the camp and they spend the whole evening together. And it's, it's amazing because you wouldn't think this would be the most popular thing to happen at camp, but it's pretty popular. If you talk to some of the boys, I don't know what they'll say here, but hopefully they'll back me up on this, or some of the girls, I've never experienced girls night, but if you talk to some of the boys, they'll say that that's their favorite night of camp. And then, well, what, what's your favorite part when, you know, like, cause that's an odd thing. And I'm telling you, like at the end of the day, when we're sitting, sending everybody back to the cabins, it's like, it's like, they're never going to see that girl or that guy again. And they just have to say goodbye one last time and they have to be in proximity. But for some reason, for a whole evening, we can separate them. And that's their favorite night of camp and ask them what their favorite moment of guys night is. And I've heard this from more than one kid. It's this thing we do called warm fuzzies. Yeah, some of you are like, warm fuzzies? I don't, that doesn't sound. Warm fuzzies. What you do is you get all the guys in a room, and I generally turn off the lights, and you're ready for this. You just genuinely, earnestly compliment one another. Compliment. Just, you know, like, I just, Presley has got the greatest head of hair. <laughs> north of the Mason-Dixon line. And I just think it's so, like, it's so good, you know. And, and you get more ingenuine and more heartfelt. And these, these teenage guys, they start to say things like, I'm so encouraged by being by this person. I'm so, I'm so proud of what I know about them and where they've been and where they come. And these, these compliments are so powerful. They may not admit that to you, but I'm telling you. And I think it's so powerful because it's not the norm. Guys like to kind of be mean to each other a little bit. So genuine, earnest compliments, it's just like it builds the soul up. Um, secondly, though, I think it's a rare moment where we can hear unfiltered good from someone else with no ulterior motive. They're not selling us anything. They're not, we don't have to, they're, they're not trying to get us to do something. It's just someone else saying a good thing about us. And it's a powerful thing. We should probably do it more. It's almost like the Bible says, hey, let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only what is good for building one another up. It shouldn't be the exception on one night of the year when we separate the guys and the girls and we have the guys do warm fuzzies. It should be all the time. But alas, we are living the world that we live in. But it's just pure and it's straightforward. So Paul starts off this letter with some warm fuzzies for the people of Colossae. Just some good things. And I just want you to see this. We're going to read through this. It'll be pretty quick. But I just want you to see he's just excited for them. Verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all of God's people. The faith and the love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, this gospel it is bearing fruit and it's growing throughout the whole world, just as it is doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it, of course, from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant who was a faithful minister on our behalf, of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Now you read Paul, and this is true, it doesn't matter who you are. You could be a preacher, a theologian, but you read Paul sometimes and it just feels like it's a 50 car pileup of Bible-y words. 
You're just like, that's a lot of bible words, blah, blah, blah. Let me get to something that I can underline or, you know, put on an Instagram post. But all these bible words, let's kind of just, like, like he's just being super polite, right? Like, but that's, that's not what's going on. Paul's not trying to hit a word count. He's not turning in this essay. There's not going to be an English teacher that says, hey, you're under, you know. He's not trying to double space anything. He's genuine. This is, this is meaningful. And every word he uses matters to what he's trying to communicate. This isn't like corporate speak, a religious version of corporate speak. You know what I'm talking about? Like we're trying, I don't, I don't know corporate speak very well, but we're trying to leverage our synergies and core competencies. And you're like, that doesn't really mean anything, does it? And you're like, yeah, people who are in the corporate world, like think it means something, but the rest of us are like, no, 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 you're just making stuff up to sound smart. But Paul's not trying to do that. He's carefully choosing his language. Look at some of the words he throws in here. This is no accident. I'll have them highlighted on the screen. He writes in verses uh, five and six. He says, hey, you have already... This is important. You have all, remember, because they're, they're starting to drift. And he says, like, you have already heard. You're not, you're not, gonna, you're not waiting to hear. It's not happening in the future. You've already heard. And he writes the true message. It's not out there somewhere. You're not going to discover it somewhere else. You've already heard it. You need to go deeper in that true message he'll talk about in Colossians chapter 2. Uh, it has come to you. And he talks about this message matters. It transforms. And if you're not feeling it, if something's not changing in your life, I'm telling you, this message makes a difference in people's lives. It is bearing fruit. It's bearing fruit all over the world. And it will bear fruit in your lives. Just, he says, just as it's doing among you. You've, you've forgotten maybe, but it's happening among you. And in verse 7, you've learned it from Epaphras. Remember, Epaphras, he's, he's my buddy. And just in case you're starting to think Epaphras wasn't telling you the whole truth, if he's trying to hide a little something, no, 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 you've heard it. He's faithful. I'm telling you, he's bringing you the truth. He's a faithful minister of Christ on our account. These aren't just words. He's trying to begin to shape the direction he's going in this whole letter because they're starting to slip. They're starting to move. And he's like, no, 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 we got to shore some things up and really talk about what matters. So this is what he does. And again, this is going to sound like that 50-car pileup of Bible theology words. But in the next uh, five verses, he's going he's gonna to say some incredibly valuable things. So let's, let's cruise through this. Colossians 1, 9. For this reason, since the day we have heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. That you may live, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of the Lord of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience. We need more of that, right? And giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, and he has brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption. In whom we have redemption. That word comes from the same root word as liberty. In whom we have liberty, the forgiveness, the freedom from sin. That's good. That's good stuff. When I was uh, 12 years old, I remember this vividly because my mom got really mad at me. I, uh, I tried to make her fudge. Now, I did not consult a recipe book. I just figured, how hard can it be, right? It's various chocolatey ingredients. And so I could get some I don't know, cocoa powder, it's probably got some sugar in it, I don't know. And so I mix this all up and it makes this, this runny mess and it's not fudge-like at all. And I'm like, hmm, now can we solve this problem? Aha, we can put it in the freezer 
And that will fudge it up some and we'll, we'll get fudge when it comes out. And, you know, I'm 12 years old and I put it on this flat tray and I shove the tray in the freezer and close it. And, of course, it's kind of it's not level. And so what happened was is all this non-fudginess kind of spread all over the freezer and froze. And so my mom, who was gone at the time when she came home and probably opened up the door to uh, get something out of the freezer, and it was just this disaster of fudge. Of course, she's upset. Like, who would do this? Who would ruin the the freezer? It's not ruined, but this is going to be a giant mess. Who would do this? And there's 12-year-old Patrick's like, I was just trying to make fudge for you, you know, like, (laughs) just trying. You're my favorite mom. I was just trying, you know. Parents, there's this weird, there's this weird thing uh, where we experience anger and tenderness in equal measures for our children. Like you, you know, like you know, when they when they get hurt or you think they got hurt and you're hugging them but you're really mad at them. You know what I mean? Like I love you and why did you do that? You know, you made me so nervous. I I thought I would look up, you know, what what are some things some kids have done? And and just for context, Mom, a fudge in the freezer is not that big of a deal compared to some of the things I'm about. Do you remember that? Sort of. Yeah, you blocked it from your memory, I'm sure. These are all true stories. Uh, The child who helped her mom clean all of her jewelry by flushing it down the toilet. Guess what, Mom? How about this? The kids who washed their dad's laptop for him in the kitchen sink. Uh, I thought of one particular person with this one, but this isn't really a kid trying to help their parent. But it was the the kid who wanted to go ice skating, not in Minnesota in the winter, wanted to go ice skating. And the closest equivalent they could come up with was to take their dad's uh, vinyl collection and pull it all out and spread it along the ground and then put their ice skates on and skate through the yard over dad's records yeah um but the 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 last one i just this is kids the kids a bunch of family was over uh cousins and everybody were over there a lot of cars in the parking lot and the kids uh helped everybody by filling up their gas tanks from the hose yeah yeah well intentioned like right good you know as a parent you're like uh i'm really mad you know you ruin the thing my vinyl collection, jewelry, whatever, but your kid meant well, right? And because they mean well, they're, you should just let it go, right? Sincerity means that you can do no wrong if you're earnest, right? No, that's not true. But this is somehow a principle that we operate with, our modern way of thinking. Like, if I, if I mean well, well, then even if the outcomes aren't ideal, then it's fine because I meant well. My heart was right. And, and that's not true. There's people who, who say all the time, like, your help is not helpful. Even if you mean well, it's not helpful. Sincerity is no guarantee of positive outcomes. And sometimes we as a society value our own good desires over good outcomes. But it's not always the thought that counts. It's not always the thought that counts. I've heard some version of this phrase thousands of times, and it doesn't matter where a person falls on any sort of religious spectrum, it's all over, it's infiltrated everywhere, but it's something along the lines of, you can't tell me that fill in the blank is wrong when I am just trying to find happiness. 
And, and, and it's such a hard thing to deal with because it's just a way of thinking about life. Like if my intentions are to pursue happiness, then no matter the outcome, it doesn't matter. No matter the, 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 the trail of destruction I leave in my wake, it doesn't matter because I was, I was pursuing happiness. And, and we just know that's not true. People can pursue happiness in really deadly ways, in really destructive ways, ways that hurt themselves and the people around them. But, but we kind of let ourselves have a pass because I was... I was trying to do the right thing, but I want you to see what Paul writes in here as he's beginning to like try to support and shore up the, the, the bad ideas that the Colossian, Colossian people have. Colossians 1.9, he says, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will, his will, not your own, his will. Why? Uh, through all wisdom and understanding that the spirit gives. It's something that you've got to take in. So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way. But that's not the questions we're asking when we're trying to, 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 to wrestle with the deep questions of our life. We're, we're thinking about our will and what pleases us and, and, and how to live a life worthy of our own selves and our own ideals. And, and Paul's saying, no, 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 you need to outsource all that to God. Because we're not really good judges of all that. We're not really good at figuring that out. And this, this is tough for us to hear and it's kind of tough for me to say. But navigating... Life with our moral compass calibrated to ourselves, it's, it's a guarantee that you'll lose your way. That's what the scripture is saying over and over again. It's a guarantee. Well, this is right to me. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. Try to, try to get somewhere you've never been for before just by feel. Are you going to make it? It's very unlikely. I'm teaching one of my children to drive. Teaching's a stretch. I'm holding on to the, the bar every time we come up to a stop sign too fast is really what's happening. But I, I'm surprised by how often this individual does not know where we are in town. And well, are, are we in this area? No, we are nowhere near that area. You know, if you're, if, you're, if you're navigating by your own internal GPS, but you've never been to this place before, you're gonna get lost. That's what Paul's saying. Like we wanna be filled with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. This is the transformational life. This is the transformed life, not by calibrating it to us. There's this amazing piece of history uh, about the Chernobyl nuclear disaster. That was, I mean, this is a picture of the reactor blowing up. But one of the things as I was, I was just reading through this this week, this kind of stuff fascinates me. You know, it's all like the, you know, the, 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 uh, USSR, the government, and the way that... Anyway, but I, I thought this was so interesting because the guys in the control room of the reactor uh, knew, or of Chernobyl, knew something bad had happened, but they didn't realize an explosion had occurred and radiation was just going everywhere. They didn't know that yet. And so they got out their uh, little measurement device. I wrote it down, but I can't remember what it is. Uh, their little device that measures radiation but it only went up a little bit and the radiation was so high that they thought, well, that can't be right. So maybe it's a little elevated, but it can't be as high as it was. And they just kept sending people into their death trying to find out what's going on because they didn't, they didn't know. They didn't know. They didn't have things calibrated the, the way that they needed to be. And they didn't evacuate soon enough. And there are people who died because they were working through intuition. It doesn't Something's wrong, but we don't know what's wrong. Something happened, but we don't know exactly what happened, and, and it, it was a disaster. The church at Colossae wanted to go deeper. They wanted to be better. They wanted to be good. They wanted life to just, just, just be fulfilling and full of purpose, and we've all experienced that, right? 
I do this all the time. Like uh, if somebody comes along and says, hey, you know, the way that you can feel full of energy in the afternoon is you, you know, you eat a kale smoothie every afternoon at two o'clock. I'll hear that piece of information. And I'll be like, that sounds ridiculous. Ah, how dumb. But at two o'clock in the afternoon, I'm like, hmm, maybe I should give it a shot. And then if I'm in the store and I'm like, oh, they're having a sale on kale. I have no idea where you get kale in the store. It just dawned on me right now. I'm assuming it's in the produce aisle. I don't know what it looks like. Does it look like lettuce? But anyway, if you're going into the store, I'm like, well, you know what? I'll give it a try. Because the thing that I want, this person is telling me how to achieve the good thing that I want. And so I'll try it. Why not? Let's, let's give it a shot. The Colossian people were being told, hey, guys, if you really really want to go deeper, if you really want true spirituality, we know the way. And they were being presented with this idea that we call, and they, well, they did too, that we call Gnosticism. Have you ever heard that word before? Gnosticism. It's kind of this vague, it's really more of an approach to life than it is a thing, but this not, now you know the word agnostic, right? Agnostic means, I don't know, right? Is there a God? I don't know. Probably not, but I don't know. And Gnostic means, I do know. That's basically what it means. That's just, that's the, the, the essential uh, idea of Gnosticism is like, yeah, we've got it figured out. We know. That's what they're talking about. And so much of the New Testament actually deals with this. We've got it figured out. Uh, here's the problem with the Gnostic worldview. It, it has three primary components. Again, remember, this is an approach to life. This is a way of thinking. Gnosticism is all about experience, meaning internal transcendence. And so you achieve internal transcendence internally. It's all about what's going on in here. You have an experience. Gnosticism is also exclusive. It's kind of like spiritual clickbait because it says, hey, if you really want to know the secret that all these dummies don't know, follow this path. Only the few, only the elite find it. It was a very exclusive mentality. And then they were very extreme, and I wanted to have all these, but they were really extreme in terms of how they treated the physical world. And so two different groups. One was really uh, indulgent, and they're like, my body doesn't matter, so I can do whatever I want. And the other was like, my body is, is awful and gross and dirty, so I have to treat it harshly. I have to be incredibly, incredibly self-disciplined. So that's all Gnosticism had these three components, but it was a way of approaching life. It wasn't exactly a belief system. In fact, there's still Gnostic churches today. This is from the Gnostic Church of, uh, of Los Angeles. This is from their, you know, about us page. But they're looking for wisdom, the Greek word Sophia. They have that on their website. And wisdom together with the divine essence comprised the realm of fullness. It's the Greek word pleroma, wherein the potency of divinity operates fully. So if you happen to be a person who's looking for the potency of divinity, you'll be like, mm, I want to hear more about this. I want to hear a sermon from this church. I want to hear what these guys have to say. I want you to see what Paul writes. Remember, you're pursuing fullness. Look at what Paul writes in Colossians 2. Uh, he goes, hey, this is why Christ has come, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, Christ. You see what he's doing? He's attacking that belief system. He's saying the way you're approaching, the way you're searching for God, it's not, it's not what you want. Um, I, uh, let me show you this real quick. I'll, I'll be fast, I promise. But every once in a while, somebody will come to me and say, hey, what about all those books that didn't make it in the Bible? Are people trying to hide stuff from us? And they'll point to books like the Gospel of Thomas. Have you ever heard of the Gospel of Thomas? Yeah, why is the Gospel of Thomas in my Bible? Are you trying to keep something from us? 
hey, go read the Gospel of Thomas. Knock yourself out. It is nuts. You'll read it and you'll be like, yeah, that shouldn't have been in the Bible. That thing's crazy. Can I read you the last words of the Gospel of Thomas? Steal yourselves because this is going to make some of you mad. This is what it says. Simon Peter said to him, Jesus, let Mary leave us for women are not worthy of life. Oof, that's not good. Jesus said, uh, Jesus, of course, is going to say something wise and profound. No, Jesus said, I myself shall lead her in order to make her male. <laughs> oh, boy. So that she, too, may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who will make herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. And you're reading that and you're like, yeah, I don't think that should be in. That shouldn't be in the Bible. That's crazy. That's crazy talk. Somebody came along with Gnostic beliefs and tried to write something saying, hey, yeah, Thomas had some insight that everybody else didn't have. Gnosticism was insidious because it's hard to combat an approach to life. And this is true, and we're gonna, we're gonna start to land the plane here, but when it comes to our faith, our approach is so much harder to change than our beliefs. The way we think about faith is so much harder to change than what we actually believe. Maybe it's more accurate to say that we it's rarely beliefs that are the problem, and it's usually the approach. Like, you can think of people that they're, the way that they engage with Scripture is just to use it as a blunt instrument to control other people. And it's so hard to point out to the people that they're flawed because they're, they're approaching Scripture in such a wrong way. Uh, or some people only use God as a means of confirmation and never conviction. God will only affirm what I want to do, and he will never challenge me. And it's so hard to change. Or Christianity is just a social duty, a checked box, but it's not a way of being. Or worship is just an inner experience, but it's not really about glorifying God. Or faith becomes about how can I experience blessing, but not how can I be pleasing to God or bless others. And how we engage faith is so hard to change. And Paul gives us an important uh, reference for this approach, Colossians 1.10. He says, listen, you want to live a life worthy of the Lord? You want to please God in every way? And I'm not even sure that's true for all of us in the room. I, I don't want to assume that. But if that's true, and I hope that it is, here's how you do it. God will infuse you with his spirit to bear fruit in every good work and grow in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power so that you might have endurance and patience and you will give joyful thanks to the Father. Nothing you actually believe about Jesus will change who he is. It doesn't change anything about him. Jesus is Lord. He is king. He is head over every authority. He is the firstborn among all creation. He's the image of the invisible God. What you think about those truths won't make a difference to him, but it will make a difference to you and how you navigate life and how you work with those ideas or how you push against them. Whether you experience redemption and forgiveness or whether you don't, whether you acknowledge him as the true source of all reality or whether you try to navigate your own way. These are realities, whether or not we believe them. They're like waves of the ocean. We don't vote for Jesus. We, we, we don't fill out a form and saying, ah, yeah, I think Jesus will be Lord. We don't appoint him. The waves are going to keep coming into shore. They're going to keep crashing. There's not, you, you can either work with that reality or you can fight against it. But I'm telling you, fighting against it isn't going to be a better way. But these things will transform us. And so my, my small challenge to you is just to be open 
to the reality of who Jesus is and how that can change your life.